let's see here. How am I doing? Just doing some calculations on time here. I, um, again, so glad that you're here this morning. We've been kind of working through this series called A King and a Kingdom, Lessons from the Life of David. And so we're continuing that this morning. Uh, we're going to kind of abbreviate the message a little bit just because we wanted to spend some time really hearing from Dr. Ann and from Jan. And so um, before we get into the Word together, let's just pray and invite God to speak. God, we do just quietly bow our head and our heart before you, and we invite you to speak, O Lord, in and through your word. God, convict, encourage, confront, comfort. Make us more like Jesus in this time. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. How many of you know that the early 2000s was a really bad time to be selling websites and web development? How many of you know that? Three of you, four of you, fantastic. It's always like four people. Okay, so he here's the deal. Uh, do you remember the dot-com boom? That there was these young entrepreneurs and, and venture capitalists that had a lot of money and really low interest rates on business loans. And, and it kind of created what's called a dot-com bubble because all these guys were starting these companies that really only existed in an online space. And they were called dot-coms. And, and, and that kind of, those, those, those tenuous lending practices and things, it created what's called a dot-com bubble. And the bummer is that bubbles typically burst. I was in web sales in the early 2000s. It was not a great time to do that. Let me, let me just remind you of a couple of companies that no longer exist, but, but they did in the uh, mid-90s as the internet exploded. Uh, a company called Boo.com. Have you ever even heard of Boo.com? Neither have I, but they spent $188 million in six months trying to get off the ground. They went bankrupt in May of 2000. Infospace. Anybody know Infospace? Their stock, good, their stock was at over $1,300 a share in March of 2000. In April of 2001, 13 months later, their stock was worth 22 bucks a share. Pixelon hosted a $16 million launch party. They had the Who there and the Dixie Chicks. They went bankrupt just a year later after spending $16 million on a launch party. Company after company after company went under, went bankrupt, disappeared, AOL, Time Warner, all that stuff. The dot-com bubble burst and it just exploded. It, it was pretty clear what happened when the bubble burst. Uh, you know, we had exorbitant loans, poor planning, broken business models, and it just finally caught up to us. What wasn't clear is the why. We knew the what, we just didn't know the why. Was it uh, incomplete legislation? Was it manufactured interest rates? Was it bad investments? And over and over again, professors, business executives, reporters, they all speculated as to why the bubble burst. But there is one opinion that really does hold a lot of weight, and it's a guy named Jim Collins. Anybody who know who Jim Collins is? Good. He wrote a book called Good to Great. He was a Stanford Business School professor. He's a best-selling author. He's been a C 
senior level executive at a number of billion dollar corporations. Now he spends most of his time training the highest level leaders. He speaks, writes, he consults for really big companies. And in an essay called The 10 Greatest CEOs of All Time, uh, I was going to say Nelson Annan, but that's not right. Jim Collins uh, wrote, uh, 2003, he wrote this essay for Fortune magazine, and he responded to the dot-com failure, the dot-com bubble bursting in the early 2000s. Remember, Jim Collins knew the what. Everybody knew the what. He was trying to figure out the why. And this is his conclusion. Look up here on the screens. He says this. He says, when the debates over governance mechanisms and procedural reform are all said and done, one question will still tower above the others. Who should we choose to run our corporations? Here's what Collins is saying. He's saying that the system failed as a result of poor leaders. Bad investments were the result of poor leaders. Tenuous lending practices were created by poor leaders, and so on it goes. It was all about leadership. Collins argues that corporations rise and fall on the back of leadership. It's a question of who should we choose to run our companies? Who are our leaders? Not what we do. Great products matter. Legislation matters. A cogent business model matters. But what matters most? Leadership. I'd submit to you this morning that this principle doesn't just apply to corporations. If we want to build healthy families, we absolutely must have healthy, godly leadership. If we want to build kingdom-minded, missional, Christ-exalting churches, we can't do it without healthy, godly leadership. If we want to build strong countries that make a global impact, we must have healthy, godly leadership. If you want to pursue Christ in your life, you must be a healthy, godly leader for yourself. Small groups, short and long-term mission teams, government agencies, sports teams, community organizations, schools, you name it, leadership matters. And for some of you, you may already see yourself as a leader, and others may see you as a leader. And so here's what we're doing. Over the next two weeks, we're going to take some leadership lessons from the life of David. As he rises to the throne in Israel and he begins to lead God's people, we're going to take some leadership lessons from the life of David so that we can become healthy, godly leaders, and as a result, be more effective leaders. But but for some of you, you may not see yourself as a leader. Perhaps it's not your gift, it's not your skill, it's not your passion, and that's wonderful. We know from Scripture that if you know Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift, and that gift may be something other than leadership. However, I want you to know that even though you may not be a day-in, day-out leader, I would venture to guess that it wouldn't take long for you to recognize that you have leadership moments because each of us has leadership 
moments. You may not be a day-in, day-out leader, but each of us has leadership moments. Maybe you're leading a Bible study. Maybe as a mom or a dad, you're leading your kids. Maybe you're leading a friend to Christ. Maybe you're leading by example in your workplace. These are all leadership moments. So no matter what your natural gifting is, each of us has leadership moments where we can apply these leadership lessons from the life of David. No matter where you are, you have leadership moments. So we're going to learn some leadership lessons from the life of David and apply those in our life. Today we're going to tackle two, just two of those lessons from the life of David that will help us develop into Christ-honoring, effective leaders whenever and wherever those leadership moments present themselves. Our first leadership lesson from the life of David comes from the passage that Pastor Kevin spoke about just a couple of weeks ago, 1 Samuel 24. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. Uh, We don't have Bibles in the seat backs because there are no pockets in the seat backs, but we will once we get back in the sanctuary. But now that we're in the sanctanasium, there are no Bibles in the seat backs. So bring your Bible with you. And if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. You can use an iPhone or iPad or whatever you want to do. And we've also got the scripture up here on the screen. Leadership lesson number one from the life of David. Remember, David and some men had retreated to the cliffs and caves in order to escape Saul's uh, danger, the, the kind of the revenge that he was trying to exact on David. So pick it up there in verse 1. It says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. I think it's hilarious that the Bible puts that in there. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men and with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So listen to what's happening here. David is young in his leadership. He's not king in Israel yet, but he is leading a group of men and they're hiding in the cliffs and caves. Saul is king and he's a bad king. David has been anointed the next king. So when Saul is gone... God's will for David is to give him the throne. David's retreated to these caves in order to escape Saul, but Saul has hunted him down and intends to kill him. Saul pops into a cave to do some personal business. I'm just trying to say it delicately here. And David's men tell David, they say, David, look, here it is. Here's your opportunity. King Saul has come in to to Titi, so take the opportunity. The Lord has given you this opportunity. Take it, kill him, and take the throne. Listen to what they're saying. They're saying, 
God has placed this opportunity before you. That's crazy. Here's how David responds. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. In other words, the opportunity was there. The means were there. The motive was there. But David says no based on principle. He says, this is God's anointed. I'm not going to touch him. When it comes to healthy, godly, effective leadership, I cannot tell you how significant this moment is. Remember, David can take Saul's life and seize the throne. No one would have blamed him for it. In fact, they probably would have celebrated him for it. His men are actually encouraging him, saying, God wants you to do this. Could David have done it? Yes. Did he do it? No. Out of principle, he simply says this phrase, no, I won't do that. Here's leadership lesson number one from the life of David. Good leaders can say, no, I can't. Great leaders can say, no, I won't. We're going to unpack this. And we're going to talk about what this looks like in our life and, and, and really here in the life of David. But, but if you're jotting notes down, good leaders can say the phrase, no, I can't. Great leaders can say the phrase, no, I won't. Listen close to the difference. This is critical. The phrase, no, I can't, speaks to opportunity, ability, or means. The phrase, no, I won't, speaks to principle, values, and vision. No, I can't is a matter of logistics. No, I won't is a matter of priority. Remember, David's not saying, no, I won't because I'm, I'm selfish, because I would prefer not to, because I don't want to put the work in. He's saying, no, I won't because my principles and my values say that I won't do that. Could I? Sure. Will I? No, I won't because of principles. David is choosing not to take Saul's life, not because he can't, but because of his values, he won't. This is what great leaders do. They set principles before determining practice. They let vision and values determine decisions. They're willing to say out of principle, no, I won't. Could I? Sure. Will I? No. I won't. And this phrase, no, I won't, out of principle, out of value, can radically change your leadership moments for the better in so many ways. The phrase, no, I won't. First, the phrase, no, I won't, it, it affirms values. It affirms values. Look at what David says. He says in verse 7, he says, uh, sorry, verse 7 says, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So look what David says to his men. Out of my values, I, I, I value God's will above taking the throne by force. So no, I won't kill him. And what? He persuaded his men. He led those who were following him to share and espouse the same value. 
when David said, no, I won't. Let's, let's take an example from parenting. Let's take an example from parenting, and, and especially leadership when it comes to leading your kids. Let's, let's apply this principle, no, I won't. Uh, I had an elder share this story with me a little while ago. He was, um, he was at the grocery store with his little girl. She's like four or five. And he was at uh, this Longo's right here on Baseline, or Baseline, on Bayview and John. So they go in, they're doing some shopping, and she sees like a muffin on the counter or something that she really wants. And, he, and she says, Daddy, will you buy me that muffin? And he says, sure, I will. Next day, they're back at the store, and she sees the same muffin, and she says, Daddy, will you buy me that muffin? And he says, no, I won't. And she says, well, do we not have the money? Well, sure, we have the money. Well, do we not have the time to eat it? Well, sure, we have the time to eat it. But out of value, out of principle, I'm not going to buy you that muffin. Why? Because mom is going to cook dinner and we're not going to spoil our appetite. Why? Because I'm teaching you delayed gratification. I'm teaching you healthy eating habits. I'm teaching you stewardship all in a single moment when he used that phrase, no, I won't buy you a muffin. He led his daughter to share Christ-honoring values. Was she happy about it? I'll give you two guesses, and you probably only need one. No, she was not happy about it. But this phrase, no, I won't do that, just because I can doesn't mean I should. Just because I have the means, because I have the resources, just because David could have killed Saul and taken the throne doesn't mean he should. He had different values, and in saying that phrase, no, I won't, he affirmed his values and led his men. Number two, that phrase, no, I won't, not when it's like, no, I won't because I'm too lazy because I'd prefer not to. Not that. Out of principle, out of value, out of vision, that phrase, no, I won't, establishes priorities. What's David's priority? David's priority is honoring God, not taking the throne. Will he eventually take the throne? Absolutely. But his first priority is honoring God. No, I won't establishes your priorities. I want you to see how this phrase, no, I won't, establish, establishes priorities when it comes to business practices, when it comes to business leaders. In 1949, a 37-year-old guy named David Packard attended a meeting of business leaders. They discussed how to make more money. David Packard didn't buy it finally spoke up. This is what he says. He says, a company has a greater responsibility than making money for its stockholders. We have a responsibility to our employees to recognize their dignity as human beings. Packard held a core belief that those who help create wealth have a right to share in that wealth. To the other guys at the business meeting, his, his, his beliefs seemed borderline socialist, if not outright dangerous, and that was fine with him. He never wanted to be a part of the CEO club. 
In an era where bosses dwelt in mahogany-paneled sanctums, Packard established an open-door workspace at his company. He practiced what would become famous as management by walking around. Most radical of all, because of priorities, he said, no, I won't squeeze all the profit I can out of this business. Yes, I will share equity and profits with my employees. You see, David does the same thing. King David, not David Packard. King David establishes his priorities by saying, no, I won't take the king's life. My priority is honoring God, not taking the throne. It doesn't mean I won't take the throne eventually, but no, I won't do it by force. David Packard did the same. He said, no, I won't focus on squeezing more profit from the company. My priority is recognizing the dignity of my employees and clients and sharing the wealth with them. It doesn't mean that eventually I won't get more profit. And if you know anything about the company Hewlett Packard, you know that David Packard eventually did pretty darn well for himself. But he established his priorities first by saying, no, I won't live for the dollar bill. Yes, I will share equity and profits with my companies. Great, great business leader that established priorities by saying, no, that's not my priority. That's not my value. That's not my vision. That's not what I'm going to do. After Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle, David is slowly elevated to the throne in Israel. His first item of business is to move the capital to Jerusalem and make sure that God's people are safe within the city walls. But our old friends, the Philistines, they're not super excited about David's uh, choice, about his desire to keep God's people safe. Take a look at 2 Samuel 5. Just turn a couple pages to the right there. 2 Samuel 5, and we're in verse 17. David begins to fortify the city of God, the city of David in Jerusalem. And and the Philistines gather together. They're going to attack the city of David, Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 5 will be in verse 17, leadership lesson number 2. It says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel... All the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Verse 22, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, the Lord said, you shall not go up, go around the rear. And come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you and you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Did you see it? Twice David inquires of the Lord. 
and twice he does exactly what the Lord requires him to do, and twice he defeats the Philistines. He submitted to God's gracious leadership and God's sovereign authority when he inquires of the Lord and he says, Lord, how should I proceed? What do you want me to do? David was following what God required him to do. This isn't the first time we see David doing a great job following well. I'm sure, it wasn't, I'm sure it was much easier to follow the God of grace than it was to follow a chump like Saul, but David did that too. He learned to follow, and as a result, David had success wherever he went, which brings us to leadership lesson number two from the life of David. If you're jotting notes down, jot this down. Good leaders lead, great leaders follow. To maximize those leadership moments in your life. If God has called you to be a leader in business or in ministry or in a family, any aspect of your life, or just those moments of leadership, in order to maximize those, good leaders lead, great leaders learn to follow. I don't care if you're a CEO or a high school student, if you and I want to make the most of our leadership moments, we absolutely have to take a cue from David and learn to follow what God says and the authority that he's given to us in our lives. Great leaders are typically not hypercritical and insubordinate followers, as was the case in the life of David. Let's take this into the family. Moms, dads, as you're leading your kids, parents, how can you expect to lead a kid to submit to God's authority while you're kicking back against established authority in your life? How can you expect to teach your kids about honoring you as parents when you're speaking poorly about your own parents? How can you lead your kids to follow Christ if you haven't learned, like David, to follow Christ yourself? To inquire of the Lord and then do what he says. You see it? Good leaders lead. Great leaders have learned to follow. How about leaders in business? You cannot expect your staff to, to follow your lead towards success if you whine about the leadership that's in authority over you. If you're in management and you're trying to oversee and lead your staff and like, let's go, here we go, charge, and we're going to do this, and we're going to be successful and, and make a profit this quarter and whatever else, and in the meantime, you're going, man, our CEO is an idiot. That doesn't make any sense at all. In order to be a great leader, you've got to learn to follow established leadership, established authority, God and the authority that he has instituted in your life and in mine. A guy named Robert Kelly, he's a noted researcher and author. He talks about different types of followers. He talks about sheep, yes men, pragmatic followers. He says that the ideal follower are star followers. Listen to what he says about star followers. He says they're active positive, and work with and for the leader to achieve outcomes that are aligned with the direction and vision of the organization. You see that? They're active followers. He says, Kelly, Kelly says that these are leaders in disguise. 
In other words, the most promising leaders in business even are the best followers. I don't know about you and in your life, but, but there have been moments in my life because God has given me two spiritual gifts. Those gifts are leadership and exhortation. And, and here's what happens when, when you have a spiritual gift and you're developing it and you're learning to use it. You're learning to employ it, to bless the body of Christ, to move the kingdom forward. Uh, th- th- there can be some immaturity there. So even God wired me as a leader. He wired me as a visionary. But when I was at my previous church, Scottsdale Bible Church, I had to learn a lot about this very principle here. If I wanted to be a great leader, I had to be a great follower. I had to follow God. I had to inquire of the Lord. God, what would you want me to do? Because if you know leaders in your life, or if you're a leader, typically we can do the you know, ready, fire, aim approach. You know what I'm talking about? We can kind of lead with our forehead. It's kind of like, you know, first one through the door always gets bloody, and typically the leader does, right? Like, that's kind of how I worked, and I, I didn't think, I didn't inquire, I didn't really submit to the established authority that was in my life. And I'm not talking about kind of outright insubordination. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about my boss, the worship pastor, Troy Peterson, who I, I was actually texting with last night. Uh, wonderful man, great leader, good friend of mine, and I'm excited to see him in a few weeks when I'm back in Scottsdale. But he would choose a particular song in a worship service, and I'd be over here on guitar going, man, this is the dumbest song I've ever heard in my life. Why do I have to play this thing? And God would tap me on the shoulder and go, because you're not the leader. Learn to follow, kid. God calls me that sometimes. Learn to follow. You want to be a good leader? Just go lead. You want to be a great leader? maximize your impact, learn to follow God and the established authority that's in your life. Kids, that's why God says, honor your mom and dad. They're the leaders. That's why when we work, we work as unto Christ because he is the ultimate leader. That's why the the Bible says, submit yourselves for the the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether it's the king as supreme authority or the governor. He says, submit, learn to follow well, because that will make you a great leader in every aspect of your life. In every leadership moment, you must first learn to follow, because that's what great leaders do. You know that, that David, I love this about David. David wasn't just this like isolated incident, right? It wasn't just this like kind of isolated life that the Bible just decides, oh, we, we got to have a story about someone, you know, uh, you know a king and, and rising to authority, and so we'll just put that in there. That, that's not what David's there for. David's there because he's a shadow. Listen close. He's a shadow. He's a picture. He's a forerunner for Jesus. Whether David is, is in his friendship with Jonathan, whether David is ruling over Israel and leading Israel, whether he's conquering Goliath, his life continues to point forward to Jesus. And listen, his leadership is no different. Look at, look at the life of Christ. You might be thinking, like, where, when did Jesus say, no, I won't, out of principle? Where, where did he ever say that? 
Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and this is the night before he goes to the cross and Judas comes with the Roman authorities and he betrays Jesus into their hands to go to the cross and his disciples scramble and Peter tries to stop the thing and he pulls his sword out and he attacks one of the Roman soldiers and Jesus says, no, 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 stop, stop. Matthew 26, verse 43, he says to his disciples, do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions, that's 12,000 angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Could Jesus call down an angel defense? Sure he could, 12,000 of them. Did he? No, out of principle, because he valued the scriptures being fulfilled above saving himself the pain of the cross. He affirmed values for his disciples. You see it? He established priorities for his disciples. He submitted to the Father's timeline when he said, Could I? Sure. Will I? No, I won't. Not because he would prefer not to, but, but because of his principles, his values determined it. How about learning to follow? John 12, verse 49, Jesus says this. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus, even Jesus, the greatest leader, by the way. Take, take 12 ragtag you know, borderline illiterate fishermen and change the world. Still rocking 2,000 years later. That's a good leader. And even that leader in John 12, 49 says, for I have not spoken on my own authority. I've learned to follow what the Father says. I've learned to respond to him. I've learned to inquire of him. That's what makes Jesus such a great leader. Essentially, that's what the Christian life is. That's what the Christ life is. It's learning to submit to the greatest leader that ever walked the planet in Jesus Christ. The leader that loves you very much. He's a gracious king and a good king and a king that is ready to give you rewards. Willing to say the phrase, no, I won't, because of value, because of principle, and willing to submit to authority in his own life. As we conclude our time uh, this morning, we're going to honor Jesus, the greatest leader, who, before, uh, because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. At night I was talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was having dinner with his disciples, and uh, as he was having dinner, he, he blessed the food, and when he had blessed it, he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. He said, this bread represents my body. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Then he took a cup of wine. We use juice, and he says, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. And for 2,000 years, the church has been doing just that. We've been eating a little wafer and a little bit of juice together, remembering Jesus who gave his body for us, who shed his blood for us in order to ratify us, uh, ratify the new covenant and graft us into the new covenant that is his body and his blood. 
band, would you guys come back up and just kind of lead us in a closing song here? Our ushers are preparing in the back, and here's what we're going to do. In these next moments, as the band leads us, I would just invite you to examine yourself, to confess any known sin before the Lord and enjoy His forgiveness. If you don't call yourself a Christ follower, we just invite you to pass on this part of the service. Just reflect. You can sing. You can just quietly pray. But just pass that tray on by you. But for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers and who know him, this is our opportunity to remember, to celebrate, and to thank Jesus for the sacrifice that he paid in order to save you and to save me. Praise God. Ushers, if you would come forward and let's pray together. God, in these next moments, we just reflect quietly before you, even as we hold these elements and wait uh, on the rest of everybody to be served so we can take them together as a body. God, we come before you with sin, we confess it, and we enjoy your forgiveness. God, remind us today of the weight of that sacrifice and, God, of the weight of the glory that's waiting for us because of what you did. We take this time now to reflect, to confess, God, and to enjoy your forgiveness. In Christ's name, amen.